0: Psalm chapter 4 is where we will be today. As you're turning there, we're going to be talking about pursuing joy in Jesus. And I know there are times when it is very difficult to do that, times in your life when there's tragedy and sorrow. So in order to address some of your questions at the beginning, I would like to let you know about a resource that can help you. John Piper has written a book called uh, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy, and there's a PDF version of that that's free online at desiringgod.org. The final chapter in the book is called When the Darkness Does Not Lift. So if you're going through something heavy, this is a good book for you to help you fight for your joy in Jesus when dark times come or when you just don't flat out desire it. So go there, desiringgod.org. There's a free PDF download of that book. Psalm chapter 4. Let's pray once again. Father, as we come to your word, we see David in this psalm who is experiencing some great pain in his life. He needs you to answer his prayer. His friends are going through something. They need you to answer their prayers. And there are many times in our lives, God, when we feel that need, like we need you to answer now. And sometimes you do. Right away, the way we want, and David seems to get peace by the end of this psalm. And yet, on the other side, there's Psalm 88, probably the saddest psalm of all because there's no closure. It just ends on such a sad, dark note. And so we find ourselves between these two places, God. And we know the command in your word to find our joy in your son. So some are dealing with heaviness this morning. And Psalm 4 is not going to seem like it's bringing much help because they're living Psalm 88. So God, would you come today through your word? And Psalm 43 says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us to your holy hill. And then we will go to the altar of God, to God our exceeding joy. Would you send out your light and your truth this morning, Father, that they would lead us to you because in spite of the darkness and the pain, you still are our exceeding joy. Do it for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom and for our joy we ask in Jesus' name, by the Spirit, amen. Picture me, With ground teeth, stalking joy, fully armed too, as it's a highly dangerous quest. Picture me with ground teeth, stalking joy, fully armed too, as it's a highly dangerous quest. That's what one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, said. It's a picture of the Christian life. It's what Christian hedonism is all about. Doing whatever it takes to find pleasure in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're about here at Grace. We want to live lives that declare that Jesus is our treasure, that Jesus satisfies us more than anything that this world can offer us. And to be able to say that, to be able to say that Jesus is our treasure, we must fight, we must do battle, we must, as Flannery O'Connor said, grind our teeth, clench our teeth, and stalk joy. In Jesus. We must pursue joy. We must hunt it down. And we must do it fully armed. With the gospel. Because it is a dangerous quest. The devil. Satan. Does not want us to find our joy. In Jesus. Which is why Flannery O'Connor also quoted Cyril of Jerusalem when describing the pursuit of joy. Cyril said, The dragon is at the side of the road, watching those who pass. Take care, lest he devour you. You are going to the father of souls, but it is necessary to pass by the dragon." The road to joy in a disciple's life will not be one of ease and rest and passivity. It is a dangerous quest. You must pass by Satan, that ancient dragon, as Revelation 20 calls him. You must pass by the dragon every day as you make your way toward the city that is to come, according to Hebrews 13. You are going to the Father of souls, but it is necessary That you pass the dragon, and you will pass him every day. And when you pass him every day, he will hold out to you the pleasures of this world to keep you from being satisfied with Jesus. Satan will use anything to distract you and me from stalking joy in Jesus. Satan will use anything to capture and distract your heart It may be sex and drugs and all those sins that we think pull us away easily, but he will also use other things to capture your heart that you may not realize. Pain, worry, hurt, fear, stress, broken relationships. He will use anything to get your eyes off of Jesus. He will use anything to capture your heart. Anything. Which is why Psalm 4 is so helpful. David will teach us that when everything in life falls apart, strive to enjoy the one who sustains your heart. When everything in your life falls apart, strive, be vigorous in your pursuit to enjoy Jesus Christ because he is the one who sustains your heart. The great heart sustainer is Jesus. You were made to glorify him and to enjoy him now and forever. And David will teach us in Psalm 4 how to do that when life is falling apart. David's situation is one of desperation. You can hear it in his voice big time. David's got issues. He's dealing with some heavy stuff in his personal life. David is surrounded by dragons, if you will. He is surrounded by enemies who relentlessly taunt him. And he's got friends who are struggling too. His friends are having to pass by the dragon as well. And the temptation for David and all of us in these moments is to try and carry the burden ourselves. The temptation and our tendency when things fall apart and go south in our life is to try and handle it on our own. And the temptation and our tendency when things go south in our family's life and in our friends' lives is to try to bear their burdens, but we can't. We weren't made to do that. The load is too heavy. So Psalm 4 comes along at just the right time in the Psalter to remind us that when everything in life falls apart, strive to enjoy the one who sustains your heart. Psalm 4 is structured this way. Verse 1, David speaks to God. In verses 2 through 3, David speaks to his enemies In verses 4 through 5, David speaks to his friends, about his friends. And then in verses 6 through 8, David speaks to God. Now look at verse 1 and see where David is speaking to God. And hear the desperation in his voice. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I mean, clearly David is desperate here. This is not one of those casual, Lord, watch over us and protect us, grant us traveling mercies kind of prayer that just kind of roll off our tongues with no passion and no thought behind them. This is one of those nail-biting, pace the floor kind of prayers. To use a baseball term, David is in a pickle here. But even though he may be biting his nails and pacing the floor, this prayer is stuffed. This prayer is oozing with faith. Faith in the Lord. David is saying, Yahweh, Lord, answer me. I'm backed against the wall here. You've come through for me in the past. Now I need you to do it again. I need you to do what you do best. Be gracious to me and hear and answer my prayer. And David has been where he is right now before. Psalm 4 is not new to David. This is not his first rodeo, and this is not Yahweh's first rodeo. As evidenced by what David says, he says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Distress in the Hebrew means to be pressed or squeezed in, hemmed in, in a a tight spot, in a, a narrow place contrasted with what he's asking for, which is relief. And the Hebrew word has the idea of of literally make a wide open space for me. Make a large place for me. What David is saying is that his circumstances and his enemies have painted him into a corner. He has nowhere to go. He's hemmed in, he's in a tight spot, and he's praying desperately for Yahweh to make a wide open space for him. He's boxed in and has nowhere to go. He needs Yahweh to intervene so that he can have some room to breathe. But notice what David does here. He marries his desperation with his doctrine, with his theology, with what he believes about the character of God. He says in the beginning, answer me. There's the desperation. And here comes the doctrine the theology. God of my righteousness. And then he says, you have given me relief. There's the doctrine, the faithfulness of God. And then he comes back to the desperation, be gracious and hear. And when David says, God of my righteousness, he's not speaking of imputed righteousness the way that we think of the doctrine of justification, that God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He's not talking about that here. The Hebrew word for righteousness means vindication. David means that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is the one who will vindicate him. God will show David's enemies that David is in the right And David also knows from experience that Yahweh can deliver him. He says, you have given me relief. You have pulled me out of the tight place where I was squeezed in, and you have placed me in wide open spaces. Now I'm asking you to do that again. Be gracious to me. Show me more of your grace. Hear and answer my prayer. And so there's the lesson for us when it comes to praying whether you're in trouble or not, whether life is falling apart or not, marry your desperation or your situation with your doctrine, with your theology, with what you believe about the character of God. When you find yourself backed up against the wall, or any time for that matter, talk to God about God as you tell Him your problem. Talk to God about God As you tell Him about your problem. If you describe God to God when you pray, it will build your faith. As you tell God about your problems, tell God about Himself. The prayers in the Bible do this. I don't think we do it as much, but the prayers in the Bible tend to focus on the character of God a lot more than we are prone to do. We usually just lay out our problems. Dear God, I'm in a pickle, I'm in a tight place, help me, amen. David teaches us that we must join our desperation with our doctrine, with what we believe about God when we pray. And when you do that, you'll find yourself believing that God can and will deliver you again. But David not only talks about and to his God in his prayers, David also talks to his enemies. Look at verses 2 through 3. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David addresses his enemies in his prayer, and this is what I love about David. Don't think he's lost his marbles, okay? He's not the the crazy man who roams the streets talking out loud to imaginary persons that you can't see. His prayer in doing this is just one way, another way, that he is building his faith in the Lord. His enemies have have been bringing false charges against him. They continually slander him. And they love doing this. They love their, their vain words and they seek after these lies, he says. They love to slander David at the water cooler at work. But it doesn't phase David. David pulls out some old-fashioned Israelite theology and he lets his enemies know that Yahweh hears him and loves him. When David says here, the the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He's using covenant language. The godly, uh, the Hebrew word for godly here could be rendered covenant one. It's the Hebrew word hasid. And it's related, as you can probably guess, to the Hebrew word hesed. Which means covenant loyal love. Steadfast love, the Bible often translates it that way. Hesed has to do with God's steadfast love. Love And David says, I am one of the Hasid, the godly, the ones who are loved by Yahweh with hesed, steadfast love, and I love him back. David is saying, I am set apart by God because I am in covenant with him, and also because I am the anointed king of Psalm 2. David may be slandered in the newspapers and the blogs and on talk radio, but that won't change his covenant status with Yahweh. It's like what pastor and author Jared Wilson put on Twitter a few weeks ago. He said, you can throw me under the bus, but you're not going to set my agenda. God's too good and too big for that. That's what David is saying here. He's not going to let these enemies, these dragons, if you will, set his agenda. David is going to stock joy in Yahweh the one who vindicates him. And so we may not be kings like David, but Psalm 4 still applies to us because we are the beloved children of God, as Ephesians 5.1 says. Just because we don't sit on a throne or wear a crown doesn't mean that verse 3 is not true for us. Jesus has made it true for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And yet, in spite of our royal standing with God because of Jesus, we, like David, are not immune from the slander of the world. We are the scum of the earth, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.13. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I would love it if we changed the name of Grace Baptist Church to Scum of the Earth Church. I think people would show up. They'd be interested. Driving through the roundabout, there it is. Oh, they changed their name to Scum of the Earth Church. It might be good to remind us that we're not immune from the slander and the hatred of the world. The word scum here that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4.13 is filth or rubbish. It's, it's what you sweep up off the floor. It's what you scrape off of something, the table that you're cleaning. The word refuse here is what you scrape off your plate after a meal. Paul is saying that the people of God are, in the eyes of the world, garbage that is to be set out to the curb. The world will never like us. The world will always slander us. But through it all... We remain the beloved children of God. Our covenant status with God never changes in spite of what the world says, in spite of what they think about us. And that's why David talks to his enemies in him prayer. He's just rehearsing the gospel here. He's reminding himself that nothing can change his relationship with God. Yahweh hears David when he calls to him. Yahweh is listening to his beloved son. David is secure. Not because of what he does, he is secure because of what Yahweh has done for him. And we too are secure, not because of what we do, not because of our obedience, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Psalm 4 is teaching us to sprinkle a little theology on our prayers. To sprinkle a little theology on our prayers. And when we do, it's amazing how, our hearts will be strengthened. Remind yourself what God has said about you as his beloved, and your heart will be strengthened when you pray. When everything in life falls apart, strive to enjoy the one who sustains your heart. When everything in life falls apart, strive to sprinkle some theology on your prayers, and you'll find that you will enjoy Jesus, the one who sustains your heart. And that's what David has been doing since verse 1, and it's where he's headed. He's enjoying the God who will vindicate him. He's enjoying the God who has given him relief in the past. He's enjoying the God who is gracious to him and hears his prayers. He's enjoying the God who has set him apart in covenant love. And now David wants his friends to experience this joy. Look at verses 4 and 5. David speaks to his friends. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now David turns to address his friends, fellow Israelites who are all worked up over the way the world is going and and how they are being treated. These people are bothered by their enemies, by these dragons, if you will. And they're bothered about what they are saying about God's covenant people. David's friends have have got themselves worked up over how things are going in their country. They are frustrated with the injustices that they see in their nation. They can't believe how taxes have increased and the wealthy have to provide for the poor and how immigrants are illegally entering their country and getting benefits. They are appalled that the health care system has been overhauled. They can't believe how politically correct everything has become. They are so mad that their nation is going downhill And that it's not what it used to be. They are so worked up over the way things are that they have lost focus. Know anybody like David's friends? Here's what David wants his friends to do. The ones who are so worked up about how things are going. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. How in the world do you be angry and not sin? I'm not very good at it. I'm not sure I've ever been angry and not sinned. Jesus was really good at it. But I'm not. The two words at the end of the verse, four, tell us how. Be silent. I'd paraphrase that Hebrew the way a friend of mine that used to work with at Starbucks used to say, he'd say, shut your face. The way You can be angry and not sin is by being quiet, by keeping your thoughts to yourself. Actually, David gives us liberty to speak. He lets us speak our minds, but where and when and to whom? David says, speak in your heart to God when you're laying in bed at night. The Hebrew word here, ponder, when he says ponder your hearts, is literally the Hebrew word speak or say. David is saying, be angry at all the injustices you see. Be frustrated at the way the world works and how they treat you. But be angry and don't sin. You can do that, friends, by being silent. That means no Facebook rants about the country. No Sunday school discussions about how terrible our nation is. Oh, you want to talk about these things, David says? Okay, when you go to bed at night, talk in your heart. Speak, scream, yell, discuss, rant inside your heart. But do all of that by speaking in your heart to the great heart sustainer. Rehearse the gospel. Think about substitutionary atonement. Think about how how God forgives you. A sinner like you. A sinner who also does not have his act together and then trust in the Lord. That's what David is saying to his friends in verses 4 through 5. David wants his friends not to get worked up. He wants them to keep corporate worship in view. He wants them to keep meeting with the people of God, to keep gathering as the church. He wants them to keep offering sacrifices and to keep trusting that Yahweh will make things right. David's not opposed to expressing frustration. He's not opposed to standing up against the injustices in the world, which we need to do. We need to stand up against abortion. We need to stand up against human trafficking. We need to stand up for marriage. We need to do those things. David's not saying, sit back and be passive and do nothing. All David is encouraging his friends to do here is to express their frustrations and their hurts in a godly manner. And the godliest thing to do is to close your mouth and then open it in prayer to God. David's just saying the same thing that he's been saying all along in Psalm 4. When everything in life falls apart, strive to enjoy the one who sustains your heart. When everything in life falls apart, strive to keep your mouth shut and then pray to God, and you'll find that you will enjoy Jesus, the one who sustains your heart. You'll enjoy him more than you hate what is happening around you. David wants his friends to enjoy God more than they hate what is happening in their world. He wants them to love and delight in God more than they are stressed out about their current affairs. He wants them to enjoy the Lord more than they are frustrated and angry. David wants them to be more satisfied in God than they are angry at the world. David wants them to see The red blood of the sacrifices. The red blood of the sacrifices which provide atonement. The red blood of the sacrifices which provide forgiveness. And make them right with God. The red blood of the sacrifices. He wants them to see the red blood of the sacrifices more than they see red. And are angry at what is happening. And one of the ways that that will happen is if David prays for his friends, which is exactly what he does in verse 6. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? And then David prays, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In the first part of this verse, David is telling us what his friends have been saying. They are in the pit of discouragement. They have been asking, who will show us some good? Everything is falling apart. Life stinks. Life sucks. Does it all have to be bad news? But then I love what David does here. All that doctrine and theology that he loves, that he's been using in his prayer, he pulls it out again. To pray for his friends. And he sprinkles some more theology on top of the prayer that he prays for his friends. David calls out to Yahweh to have mercy on his friends, those whose lives are falling apart. And he says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David is so connected to the community of faith, so connected to the church that when they hurt, he hurts. So he prays for them. And he actually takes Aaron's blessing from Numbers chapter 6 verses 24 through 26. And he prays it for his friends. He takes the the theology and the doctrine and the character of God that's there in Numbers 6. And he sprinkles it on top of his prayer for his friends. And here's that theology from Numbers 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. That word gracious there in number six. That the priests would pray, that God would be gracious to them. It's the exact same word that David uses in Psalm 4. I think David's saying, God, I want you to be gracious to me, like number 6, and be gracious to my friends. And God says, I will put my name. The Hebrew word there behind name is the idea of character, of who God is. I will put my character, who I am for my people upon them. And that's what David is praying here. He paraphrases this blessing or this benediction that the priest would pray over Israel at the tabernacle and he turns it into a prayer for his friends who are discouraged. David actually believes this. His theology just keeps coming out in his prayers. David wants Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, to intervene and to be gracious to his people. He wants God to have mercy on them and bring some encouragement. David would tell his friends, when everything in life falls apart, strive to enjoy the one who sustains your heart. But then David turns his attention to himself in his prayer. So look at verses 7 through 8 where David is speaking to God again. You have put more joy in In my heart, than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Verse seven shows us that David enjoys the Lord. That God has put more joy in David's heart than the worldly people have when their grain houses are overflowing, when their wine cellars are overflowing. David is saying, God, you have put more joy in my heart because I'm fixed on who you are and your character. I'm rehearsing the gospel, and because I've done that, you have put more joy in my heart. You satisfy me, God, more than everything in this world. So imagine the richest person that you know on the planet. They have everything, right? They need nothing. Of course, they need the Lord, but worldly speaking, they have everything. And David says that the joy that he gets from God far surpasses any happiness that this world can offer. The world celebrates 20 million dollar athlete contracts and second homes and third homes in exotic places and juicy income tax returns and lottery winnings and all the glittery, sparkly, shiny things that this world can produce. And David comes along and says, All that stuff, all that stuff that Satan The dragon holds out to me as I am on my way to the city of God. He says, all that stuff can't hold a candle to what I have with my God. Yahweh has given me more joy than all of that stuff. David may be desperate at the beginning of Psalm 4. David may be backed into a corner, but he has God and therefore he has joy. God is sustaining David's heart, even though life is hectic all around him, even though life is falling apart. In fact, not only does David have joy, he has a deep peace. He says in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David says, I'm going to lie down and I'm not going to toss and turn. David doesn't have to pace the floor anymore. His mind isn't going to race all night. He's not going to toss and turn. He has peace. His theology and his doctrine have so flavored his prayers that he plans on getting a good night's sleep. And because Yahweh makes David dwell in safety, he plans on sleeping all night and waking up with drool and slobber all over the side of his face. David plans on waking up with messy hair and wiping the drool off his face and stretching and feeling refreshed. Can it be? Can this be true for us? Yes, when you are so desperate that you pray theologically rich prayers and you throw yourself on the mercy and grace of Jesus, the great heart sustainer, then yes, you can sleep like this. Puritan Richard Sibbs said this, It is good, therefore, to store up true principles in our hearts and to refresh them often, that in virtue of them, our affections and actions may be more vigorous he's saying store up the promises of god store up the promises of the gospel think about the character of god store them refresh them review them rehearse them often and what will happen is your affections your emotions your joy for god will be unleashed and you'll become more vigorous at saying no to the dragon as he holds out things to you As you march to the city that is to come. So when the dragons of this world. Try and capture your heart. Rehearse the gospel. And remember all that God is for you. And his son Jesus Christ. Rehearse who God is. And your affections for Jesus will be stirred. Rehearse who God is. And you will be more vigorous in your pursuit of joy. You'll begin stalking joy. When life is chaotic and the world slanders you. When you are backed up against the wall and you have no room to breathe and you're wanting wide open spaces. When people that you love are so overwhelmed and they just want some kind of relief. When the ungodly prosper and seem like they have no needs and live the carefree life. When someone is breaking your heart, then you are in a perfect place to throw yourself upon the great slobber-producing heart sustainer. You can lie down and sleep in peace and sleep in a puddle of drool on your pillow. You can have more joy than the world has when you marry your doctrine with your desperation, and you run to Jesus. When everything in life falls apart, strive to enjoy the one who sustains your heart. When life is chaotic and you feel pressed in and surrounded by troubles, when the world taunts you and makes fun of you for loving Jesus, when you're frustrated with how things in this country are shaping up, when your friends are experiencing overwhelming despair, when you are heartbroken, when there's relational difficulty and strife, when there's wayward children turning away from Jesus and and lapping up everything that the dragon holds out to them, then send off this message from your heart. Let your heart be a megaphone that sends this message off to the world and to those who are breaking your heart and to everyone that you know. Let your heart become a megaphone that shouts this out. Jesus is greater than all my pain. Jesus is better than anything this world can offer me. Jesus is greater than all pain. Jesus is greater than all suffering. Jesus is greater than all sorrow. Jesus is greater than all money. Jesus is greater than all pleasure. And because Jesus is sovereign and because he is my treasure in this life, then he will rule over my heart. He will rule over my emotions. He will rule over my affections. CNN or Fox News won't stir my heart and emotions more than him. The ridicule that I hear from others will not dominate my heart because Jesus is my king. The pain that I feel in my heart will not triumph over my emotions. Jesus is the only one that I will let dominate my heart and my thoughts. He is sovereign. He rules on the throne of the universe and he rules on the throne of my heart. And not all of these other competing emotions and feelings. That's the message. You send off to others when all hell breaks loose and life falls apart. You tell the watching world that Jesus alone stirs your heart. You tell them he is the reason you can sleep good at night. So good that you wake up in a pool of drool and slobber. The joy and peace you have is because Jesus sustains your heart when you're backed up against the wall. And you get your heart in that position by rehearsing the gospel, by remembering that Jesus lived the life that you could never live and that Jesus died the death that you deserve and God raised him from the dead. You remind yourself that you are the beloved of God, that that is your identity. And you do what David said to do, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You remember the sacrifice of Jesus and you put your trust in the Lord. If someone or something is breaking your heart this morning and you feel like David's friends, let Jesus sustain your heart. If there's relational conflict, let Jesus capture your heart more than the pain that you feel. The pain is real. Don't deny that. I'm not saying deny that. I'm not saying put on a plastic smile and walk around and say, it's okay. The pain is there. You may be in Psalm 88 right now. I'm not saying ignore that. The pain is there. But strive to enjoy Jesus more than the pain hurts you. Let the great heart sustainer sustain you as you think about his character and all that he is for you in the gospel. Stalk him. Do everything you can to get more of Jesus. Grind your teeth and stalk joy. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded of just relational difficulties. Many of us parents are dealing with parenting issues, with our children who've heard the gospel and either live in our homes or not. And they're just lapping up everything that the great dragon Satan is offering them. So I know there's broken hearts here this morning. There's relational difficulty in our families and in this church and at work and in our neighborhood. There's relational difficulties in marriages. And so we are desperate for you today, God, because these things are strong the emotions and affections that they stir up in us are strong and powerful. And so many times we live like they rule our hearts. So we don't want to deny the pain, Father. We don't want to deny the reality of suffering in this world. We want to hate injustice, God, but so often our hearts are captivated by these things. Would you teach us to be satisfied with Jesus And that it is a pursuit that we must strive to do it moment by moment. And so God, give us your grace. Many of us have so many things weighing on our hearts. I ask for my brothers and sisters here. I ask for myself. Be gracious to us, God. Answer our prayer. Give us relief. We're distressed. We're back against the wall. Do what you do best and show up and intervene and sustain us if we're living Psalm 88 right now, God. Sustain us, but show up and satisfy us. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us to your holy hill and then we will go to the altar of God to God our exceeding joy. May we be able to say with David. David, that you would put more joy in our heart than the world has when their wine and grain abound. Would you help us to delight ourselves in you so that you give us the desires of our heart? And if we're delighting ourselves in you, God, then the desires of our heart would be for more of you. So we ask for more of you, God. Let the hearts of those who seek you rejoice. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation this morning. Father, satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, your covenant love, your Hesed, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Do it now by the power of the Spirit as we think about the promises of the gospel for your glory and for our joy and our comfort. Be gracious to us, God, and answer our prayers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.